welcome to Wisconsin DNR's Wild Wisconsin Off the Record Podcast. Information straight from the source. Wisconsin DNR's Wild Wisconsin Off the Record Podcast. As a reminder, this gives us a really good opportunity to give you, the listener, um, an inside look at work done by DNR staff um, and our partners whenever we can include them. That helps you enjoy all Wisconsin has to offer. So today, uh, we've got a really cool one. I'm joined by Drew Feldkirchner and Owen Boyle. So they are from DNR's Bureau of Natural Heritage Conservation. Um, So this is a really cool program that some people may not know about, does some incredibly important work in Wisconsin. Uh, We're going to start off with some intros for them, and then they're just going to get into it, kind of what the program does, um, the important work that their staff are doing on the ground and in the office. Um, So without further ado, uh, let's get started. Drew, do you want to start, kind of give background about maybe your role at DNR, kind of your background uh, and the importance of your work? Sure, yeah. Uh, Drew Feldkirchner, I'm the Bureau Director of the National Heritage Conservation Program. So I've been fortunate enough to be in this role for the last two years. Uh, I was with the program since 2001 in a, in a couple different capacities and um, excited to be in this role. We've got a lot of great staff doing great work and I see uh, Owen in my uh, role is really facilitating that work and, and helping them to be the most successful they can be in that, in that job. Owen, how about you? Yeah, my name is Owen Boyle. I'm the Species Management Section Chief uh, here in Natural Heritage Conservation. And uh, like Drew, I kind of came up through the program, uh, worked in the field for years, and uh, got a lot of on-the-ground experience with with um, native species conservation. And uh, I was lucky enough to, to end up here in central office uh, helping to manage the program and as Drew said all the the great work that our phenomenal staff do to uh, conserve the biodiversity of Wisconsin. Sure so can you guys just go into it a little bit more maybe what what your job actually entails because I think a lot of times when we're having these conversations as DNR staff bureau director species management section chief is something that we're like oh yeah like that makes total sense but for the people listening uh, can you give some background about what what a day in the life kind of looks like, what you guys are doing to kind of facilitate the work by your bureau? Uh, we do a lot of meetings. <laughs> uh, that's not the most uh, fun part of it, but we a lot of coordination. Um, we work with other programs, so I coordinate with other bureaus, so my counterparts, other bureaus. Um, we do a lot of that uh, both within the department and without, and uh, Owen can talk more about his role working with folks in other states. Um, we do a lot of things to kind of, you know, as far as keep the budget going, make sure we have funding so that our staff can stay, you know, doing the work that they're doing. We've got 50 different grants, I think, we have, we're administering at this point, or that we're managing at this point. And um, a lot of the day-to-day activities, you know, work, things that come up all the time, so you probably hear that from all the programs, is there's just kind of issues, things that need to be addressed. 
it's our role is just to keep keep staff uh, with everything they need to 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 be able to do the work they're doing. Yeah, really facilitating, as I said, the the work of our staff. And one of the things I really love about uh, my job is that we're taking uh, science, right? And um, Drew and I both have a background in science. We both have graduate degrees. We did research uh, before coming to the department. And so we're taking the the most uh, up-to-date and current science regarding um, how species, uh, you know, live in nature and, and how their populations um, decline and recover and um, and really in applying that science of conservation biology um, on the ground or I should say facilitating our staff doing uh, doing that work on the ground and so it's really fun to be on sort of the cutting edge of the science of conservation biology and applying it um, on the ground not just in sort of a theoretical laboratory or um, uh, yeah lab condition so you guys, you guys mentioned that uh, you have a background in science, uh, you have graduate degrees. Is this something, I guess I'll ask you, did you think that you'd be here back then? Is, it, is this something you wanted to do? Did you, did you think, well, the department, that might be a good fit for kind of what I wanted to do, or did, did it just kind of happen that way? Well, for me, I grew up uh, in the suburbs of New York City, so no, I didn't think I'd be in Wisconsin uh, managing a <laughs> part of the non-game program, but um, I did go to school for uh, natural resource management and uh, with a focus in conservation biology. So yeah, this is exactly where, where I plan to be uh, in the sense of, um, as I said, applying science to, uh, to conserve native species. I would say definitely I did not plan to be here. Um, got my bachelor's in forest science actually. So like a lot of us that went to school for forestry where we thought we'd be is, uh, we'd have a pickup truck and a black lab and we'd be out in the Pacific Northwest somewhere working as foresters. And one thing led to another, I got into research um, that turned into a graduate degree in um, studying carbon and nutrient cycling uh, in forests. And um, somehow I ended up with this program and I just, I like so many others, fell in love with the work. Uh, the people that we work with are here because they want to make a difference and because they want to do this work. And so it just makes it really exciting to have that, that purpose-driven uh, work to go to every day. Mm -hmm. So we're actually three for three. I didn't plan to work here either, so that's good. We're kind of the, the ragtag heroes of conservation here. So, um, And then to give some more perspective for the people listening, so the Natural Heritage Conservation Bureau is part of the Fish, Wildlife, and Parks Division. So as an example, some of the other bureaus in that division would be wildlife management, so that's game species management, like white-tailed deer, uh, parks and recreation management, so that's our state parks, um, fisheries management, that would be the equivalent of wildlife for the game fish side, um, Office of Business Services, they do a lot of the finance type stuff, uh, a lot of the budget coding, and then OAS, which is the Office of Applied Science. So just to give you guys some perspective as to where NHC fits within the grand scheme of things. So they are within the Fish, Wildlife, and Parks Division. So why don't we just get started? I think that's some really good background and gives some good perspective. So can you guys give kind of the overview of what is the NHC Bureau? For someone who may not be familiar with the Bureau as a whole, um, the work that you guys do, can you kind of give an abbreviated version of, of kind of like a mission statement or, or what what's the goal of the Bureau? Mm -hmm. 
I think the easiest way to say it would be to just look at our name. So Natural Heritage Conservation, we're here to conserve Wisconsin's natural heritage. So uh, we often think of our cultural heritage, but we also have a natural heritage. And, and to me, that includes all of the, the plants, the animals, the high quality natural areas that comprise Wisconsin. And so our job is to make sure that those things exist for well into the future for grandkids and their grandkids. And so our role is to make sure that uh, we do our part to, for that to happen. Mm -hmm. Oh, and did you want to touch on that or? That was pretty good. That, oh, Drew, Drew covered it. I think that really sums it up nicely. Mm -hmm. So natural heritage conservation. So you mentioned uh, plants and animals that you guys are working to conserve. Can you give some examples uh, maybe to, to kind of put two and two together for people? Examples of species yep. or examples? Sure. Um, so some of the, the more recognizable, um, as you said, we, we cover all natural heritage. So um, literally any species that uh, is native to Wisconsin, there are uh, over 500 vertebrate species. Um, so your reptiles, your amphibians, frogs, turtles, salamanders, uh, to mammals, to birds, um, to fish, which of course are vertebrates, they just happen to swim in the water. Um, and, uh, and to invertebrates, and there are literally tens of thousands of species of invertebrates in Wisconsin. Um, everything from butterflies to bumblebees to um, oh, uh, beetles to, you know, you name it, just about anything that, uh, uh, especially insects, even um, freshwater mussels. So again, we do cover um, aquatic uh, sort of non-game species as well. Now, um, in addition to those vertebrate and invertebrate animals, as Drew mentioned, um, we also do uh, work on plants, and quite a, quite a few. We've got, gosh, uh, hundreds of plant species on the state federal, or excuse me, the state threatened endangered species list, and so um, I think we were somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,000 plant species in the state of Wisconsin. So that all falls under our sort of administrative umbrella and um, I should mention that this all goes back to state statute so there are laws that um, that sort of establish our program and, and set us up as uh, yeah as the, um, the the primary program that addresses um, and keeps species from essentially in Wisconsin for future generations um, so that was actually pretty general. You asked for specific species, so <laughs> some of the more recognizable species may be um, things like Kerner Blue Butterfly. If you live in the Central Sands region of Wisconsin, um, it's a very small, diminutive little blue butterfly, but um, it's a really interesting story because it is, uh, it's, it's very locally abundant in Central Wisconsin, but it hardly occurs anywhere else in the world. I mean, we are the global center uh, for that species, so we have a lot of responsibility. And, and that's one of the ways we look at it in NHC is that um, we have responsibility for, again, keeping these species on the landscape um, in Wisconsin as part of our natural heritage. Um, other species that, uh, are, you know, of course, bird species, uh, birding is a, a really hot um, activity and uh, in pastime, a lot, a lot of people get out there and watch birds, whether it's just feeding in their backyard or actually taking trips to to go to, to hot spots and important bird areas. Um, so you know, from whooping cranes and and um, some of the larger, you know, really uh, 
obvious and, and flashy birds to, you know, even, of course, some of the, the little brown jobs, the little sparrows that um, are hard to identify, but uh, again, are part of our native um, animal communities and so are, again, fall within that area of responsibility for us. So, so something that we've mentioned, and I, and I mentioned it to kind of create perspective, so wildlife management, I mentioned game species, and Owen just mentioned non-game species. So can you guys explain kind of what that means and where your management kind of delineates from each other? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so in general, game species are the things you can hunt uh, to hunt or fish, and then everything else is non-game. And so that's most of Wisconsin is the non-game. Um, if you look at just the ones we're uh, most responsible for, so the rare species, so that would be in things that are nature threatened or uh, of otherwise of concern, we have over 700 of those. So it's a pretty big charge for a, a fairly small program, and so that's why it's really important for us to prioritize our work and figure out which species we should be working on. And that's where when Owen talks about the responsibility species, we know something like a carnivore blue butterfly. We have a major responsibility there because we have essentially almost all of the population right here in Wisconsin. No pressure. Right. <laughs> so yeah, I think that's a really good background of the program. So can you guys kind of talk briefly about maybe what the history of NHC looks like? I know it had a different name previously. How long has it been around? So has this always been kind of a commitment or is this something that's relatively new? Well. Um, Wisconsin passed the, uh, or, or created a, a state endangered species law, uh, I believe it was the same year that the federal government did, 1972. And um, it was a little bit after that, 1984, if I remember correctly, when, 82. or 82, okay, um, when uh, additional laws were established that, uh, that established again this, um, this natural heritage uh, inventory, at least at the time. And that really got the program going. At the time it was established uh, in the early 80s, it was called Endangered Resources. And um, that was the Bureau of Endangered Resources was our program until uh, just a few years ago, um, 2013 or 2014, you know, years that go by. Different, <laughs> different, different name, same job. Right, right. exactly. To that. And so, um, and as part of our, we did sort of an internal um, reorganization of our program and... Um, and at, at that time, we, we wanted to really recognize the fact that we don't work on just endangered species. Um, as we've been talking about, we are responsible for a much broader suite of species. And one of the things, uh, one of our approaches is really to try and keep species from getting so rare that they become, uh, or they need some sort of regulatory protection. And so, um, in a lot of ways, we focus efforts on species that aren't yet threatened or endangered to try and keep them from becoming threatened or endangered. And so, um, when we changed our name to the Bureau of Natural Heritage Conservation, that was really to reflect that, that sort of broader mission um, of, of what we do. And I should have let Owen finish, because the program uh, was a, became a bureau in 82, but it was 85, was the uh, That's right. NHI, which is what you were saying when we established that system for tracking rare species. What I think is really interesting though is that there's a really rich history that goes even a lot earlier than the Bureau. So if you look at the ideas that, that fed into us becoming a Bureau, there's things like the, the Scientific Areas Program, which is now called the State Natural Areas Program. That came about uh, largely by Aldo Leopold himself. So he had those ideas in the late 30s and into the 40s. 
And then finally, 1951 is when we got the um, Scientific Areas Program. So yeah, um, rich history, a lot, a lot of um, things that happen along the way, but like Owen says, at this point we're called NHC because we, it, it more accurately reflects our work. And we're not just endangered species, even though that's really important uh, part of what we do. So from your guys' perspective, and you, and you don't have to really get in detail here, um, has there been kind of a lot of changes in evolution to the program? You mentioned it was started in the 80s, and obviously the, the kind of general tenets of the program were started much sooner. Um, have you guys seen things change even since you've been here? We're going to get into some of the, the high-level projects you guys are working on, too, and some of the on-the-ground stuff. But from a, from a general perspective, have you guys seen kind of things change as far as whether that's public perception or, or things like that? I guess from my point of view, um, as I was just talking about, it's that, that shift, um, I perceive the shift from a focus on regulation to this sort of proactive and cooperative and voluntary approach to conservation. And again, really trying to, and this is happening both nationally, you know, and with federal laws and um, and funding and at the state level where, again, trying to, it's much more um, cost effective, as you can imagine, to to intervene and try and start recovering a species when it's still more common um, than when you're down to, say, the last couple of populations. And, um, you know, and in some extreme examples, the last population and having to try and do some really artificial means of, you know, say, um, captive rearing to, to grow a population. That's really expensive, really time consuming, and, and not where we want to be. And so um, I guess, yeah, from my point of view, um, that has been a shift. And really, you know, the, the whole science of conservation biology started in the 70s and grew in, in the 1980s. And so our program has evolved with this you know, still fairly young science. I mean, the science of ecology goes back hundreds of years, but um, really applying that science of ecology to, um, to conserve and maintain populations of species um, is somewhat of a newer uh, phenomenon, newer science. And, so um, it's only natural that we will see these, these types of, of shifts and changes. And um, from my perspective, that's sort of uh, what I've seen just over my 15-year uh, career here with the department. And, and in my point of view, it's a good thing, um, again, that you know, it's more efficient, more effective to focus on those um, species that are declining before they become endangered. And um, yeah. I really feel like uh, that's been a positive shift um, in the field. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, really what a lot of it comes down to is how do we leverage our you know, limited resources so that we can be the most effective that we can be. And so um, if it means you know, alternative approaches to conservation, wh where do we have the biggest bang for our buck? Um, we still have a state and federal endangered species laws that protect species, and, and those are very important tools, but those are one kind of piece of our toolkit, and so there's a lot of other tools we use, and other things we're doing to leverage those funds include uh, working more with citizens. So we have something like 12,000 citizens working on DNR-based projects alone for what we call citizen-based science or citizen science. 
we're, we're doing more, we work with a lot of partners. So just if you look at our state natural areas program alone, we've got over 50 different partners that we work with that own state natural areas. And so um, all of that is trying to just hone in on being the most effective we can be um, toward our goals of, of trying to conserve this really large number of species. Mm -hmm. And I think a really interesting aspect of it too, and I think this applies to wildlife management too, is you guys are working hard to conserve all kinds of species. So a, a term that we use a lot is a charismatic species. So that would be something like a carner blue butterfly. Um, and you also talked about insects. There are people out there that, that really love insects, but um, I think it's just, it's really interesting the interplay that you're working to conserve all these species and something's not getting preference just because it's popular with birders or because it's a beautiful butterfly. So there's, there's no one's playing favorites. It's kind of for the overall good of the ecosystem and as a whole, which I think is really interesting and people may not realize always. So I think that's a good perspective to have too. So what makes up the Natural Heritage Conservation Bureau? So we've mentioned that the work that you guys do, the overview, so can you give a quick rundown of kind of how the Bureau is set up and how, how those kind of offices work together? Yeah, so we have three, uh, three sections. So we have our, essentially everybody that's uh, in our field sections distributed throughout the state, working on state natural areas, working, they're the face of the program in a lot of cases, working directly with land managers, with partners, private landowners, and so on. Um, that's our field, uh, our field section. Then we have another section called program integration, which um, kind of like the name implies, they work a lot across the lines, but that's our review folks. So they help people when they're reviewing projects for impacts to our species. We have a lot of tools that we use to help them through that process, answer questions. And then our third section is Owen's. I can let Owen describe his section. Right, and so uh, as we mentioned earlier, it's called species management, and um, <clears throat> which is interesting in and of itself. You know, we don't do a lot of individual species management. We do a lot of habitat management and managing suites of species. But in any case, the name of the section is species management. And um, we've really got a lot of sort of the, the well, people with really specific and deep expertise and understanding and background in particular groups of animals. So for example, our, um, our bat team um, is, is in the species management section. And um, so these are the folks you'll hear on public radio talking about bats or um, see in the newspapers and uh, talking about white nose syndrome and, and the devastating effects that's been having on our, on our bat populations. Uh, so really, sort of providing that, um, again, as I mentioned earlier, basis in science um, and uh, sort of that technical expertise um, to support pretty much all the other aspects of the program, um, that's really the heart of, of what we do in species management. Mm -hmm. And something I th we touched on earlier is the term state natural area. So for someone listening who may not be familiar with that, can you guys explain what a state natural area is? Yeah, so state natural area is a, it's a type of state, well it's not always state owned or, or managed. Like I said, we have partners that we work with as well. But these are areas specifically designed to preserve sort of a piece of uh, high quality natural communities. They're also home to a lot of rare species. So I think across our state natural area system, 90% of the plants on our endangered and threatened list, and I think it's like 75% of the animals 
ha are, have been documented in our natural areas. So they're also pr uh, they're providing an important role there. But our natural area system, it's essentially a set of preserves. We've got to be a little careful when we say preserves because it makes it sound like you can't do anything there, which isn't the case. You can do all kinds of recreational activities there. They're absolutely available to the public, and we do our best to try to make sure people know how to how to find out where those are and, and what they can do there. But we actually have the oldest system um, of these types of preserves anywhere in the country. And the first natural area ever was uh, Parfrey's Glen. So a lot of folks are probably familiar with Parfrey's Glen because it's really close to Devil's Lake, which is our most popular state park. And the natural areas program goes back, like I said, 1951 was our first state natural area. I think we're up to 687 at this time. And about 60% of those are state-owned, uh, either in part or wholly, and then the rest we work with the partners. And so these are the places that protect things like, you know, the old forests. So these are the places that you might get to go or your grandkids, grandkids, and see an old growth forest someday and not have to drive to California. They're a place where you can see a prairie or an oak savanna. These are, the, these are communities that covered millions of acres uh, historically in Wisconsin that are now kind of 1% of what they were at that time. And so what's left of those often is protected on these natural areas. And so again, there's, there's species that need those habitats, and so this is the only place essentially they have in a lot of cases in the state. So Yeah, and, and I think Drew mentioned earlier that they started as the uh, scientific preserve system, and um, so it really came out of the University of Wisconsin system. Um, and one of their primary goals was to establish sort of a benchmark. So um, these, this is sort of, these are remnants of pre-settlement, pre-Euro-American settlement. Um, and so they're, they're preserved as, not as museum pieces, but as a way to um, compare uh, areas where we're doing active management. How do we, um, excuse me, how do we actually um, observe the effects of our management uh, and compare that to these benchmark conditions? Um, and uh, so that, that was one of the, the main purposes early on of the State Natural Areas Program. And uh, so, yeah, and as Drew mentioned, there are these reservoirs for um, diversity, lots and lots of species occur uh, on natural areas. but. Um, even though there are many of them, they're a very, very small percentage of the landscape. So in and of themselves, um, you know, that it's not like our native, our natural heritage would survive just sort of on uh, these natural areas. Um, and so we'll talk about it in a little bit, I think, but um, we work very closely with other programs that manage land, uh, DNR land as well. And so it, Again, it's not just on natural areas that we're managing as a department for um, our natural heritage. It's across uh, management types. And that's something that I think maybe a lot of people don't recognize, um, just that there are sort of different flavors of DNR land and sort of what they were purchased for, whether it's wildlife management areas that uh, were purchased primarily to provide um, recreational opportunities for hunting and trapping. Um, but again, the, they're, they, the purposes of these, uh, or you can do many uh, different activities on, even though they are different types of land uh, from a DNR administrative perspective. And as Drew said, um, uh, 
and you can hunt and fish on and trap actually on the vast majority of our state natural areas. So there is overlap. They are established maybe for different purposes, but uh, initially, but um, we sort of all within the department we work together to to manage land sort of cooperatively and sort of uh, for multiple goals, not just goals of individual mm -hmm. programs. And I, I think that's an interesting point to tease out too, because you mentioned you can hunt and trap on these lands, which I think brings up a really good point that so these are targeted targeted areas that are actively managed. Uh, Drew mentioned the the percentages of the unique species we have on there, which is incredibly interesting. But it's not just those species that are using these properties, which I think speaks to the larger the larger picture of these habitats are incredibly important, not just for the rarer species, but other species are using these too. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, actually, and I'm glad Owen brought up uh, that they're not museum pieces, because I think sometimes um, people might get that, um, have that thought about them, but I think uh, they're, well, they're very actively managed, a lot of them, so as we talk about the prairies and the savannas, they need a lot of active management, so we're talking prescribed fire, we're talking uh, removal of invasives, uh, removal of brush and woody species, sometimes timber sales, depending, timber harvest. And those species rely on that type of active management. But like you said, Sawyer, it doesn't just benefit the rare species, it benefits the game species. And so it's really a multi-use um, situation. And there's a lot of, I know, great turkey hunting that occurs on state natural areas. There's a lot of deer hunting that, that occurs there. And actually that's, that's uh, very good for other reasons to have that type of activity happening on the natural areas because our our mission there is to protect all the, the plants that and animals that make up those sites. And so sometimes they get overbrowsed by deer to the point where we start losing a lot of the diversity. And so having hunting on those on those areas is actually very helpful. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that was a good point too. That's actually a point we were gonna cover kind of examples of, of on the ground work when you mentioned active, active management on these properties. So I, I think you covered a few of them. Do you guys just wanna to touch on some of you mentioned you have field staff um, that are out there. You work with other bureaus, which we're going to touch on. Do you guys just want to kind of delve into the active management side of things a little bit? Kind of what are some of the tools that, that you and your staff have? Mm -hmm. Yeah, in terms of, you know, folks in the field, there's everything from, like, the burning that we talked about, but then there's also, like, a lot of the folks that, that work with Owen, that work under Owen, that they do all kinds of field work. So right now they're all out in the field collecting information, uh, June is really important for birds. That's that's the main time of year you can reliably identify, you know, breeding birds in Wisconsin. So yeah, prescribed fire is a very important tool we use. Um, we do end up, you know, we have to use herbicides and in, in a lot of cases for invasives. We do brush removal. Uh, we do that ourselves. We also do that with volunteers. So we have a, a natural areas volunteer group that's been growing and they're providing really hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of um, worth of effort that's really benefiting all of us. And then so other on the ground activities we're doing things um, like we have some grant funded activities where we're out restoring wood turtle nesting sites. We're protecting wood turtle nests from predators so things like raccoons that have gotten very good at locating and digging up wood turtle nests. Um, there's things like we have uh, turn projects where these are more intensive projects, so we can't do that for all 700 species, but we're where it's a priority. So 
things like turns where we're protecting individual nest sites, you know, if it's like in this case a federally endangered species, we're going to help it uh, reproduce. And then, like I said, Owen's got, I mean, there's folks out doing work with bats, locating roost trees, uh, probably this coming up next month already, um, bird surveys, you know, doing uh, surveys for different amphibians and reptiles, plants, of course, throughout the growing season. And, you know, a big part of our, you know, our charge from the legislature when they established the Natural Heritage Inventory, which is the inventory of all the rare plants and animals throughout the state in high quality natural areas, um, our charge is to, is to catalog those things where we can and, ha and maintain a database for that use. Okay. Yeah, and I don't know if this is a good time to talk about it now, but um, since you mentioned the Natural Heritage Inventory database, um, and that sort of original legislation, um, every activity, uh, everything that the department conducts, funds, or approves, so any permit, any grant, money going out the door, any activity that the department is involved in is required to avoid um, taking or killing uh, uh, threatened or endangered species. And so this Natural Heritage Inventory uh, database is, is really the, the cornerstone or the sort of bedrock that um, we use to, to, um, to avoid impacts to listed species. So any project that somebody in the department does, they go in and, and review um, known locations of threatened and endangered species. And uh, that's another thing our species experts do, we'll work with them to, uh, to avoid, uh, or in some cases minimize impacts to those listed species. So you mentioned projects where it may affect one of those species. Do you have an example maybe that, to give someone perspective of, of what a project might look like that could impact one of those species? Oh, boy, literally anything that happens that, you know, is ground disturbing or whether it's, uh, you know, building a new building or uh, conducting a timber sale or conducting a prescribed burn on a state natural area. I mean, literally anything that... Um, has the potential to, to kill threatened or endangered species um, is something. That, and again, even, uh, even as I said, things like uh, grants, funding that goes out the door for local communities to develop, say, a boardwalk through a local park. Um, uh, literally anything that, that, that state money, uh, I think, is involved with. I think I see bridges come up. Bridges, Fairly sure, sure. Yep. I mean, you can have bats roosting under bridges or barn swallows with nests on bridges. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's extremely extensive. And again, when you think about, um, the, uh, well, it's not 700, uh, 700 listed species? Not listed. Not listed, right. 700 a couple hundred listed. A couple hundred listed species. And then you think about all of those activities. Um, we're very busy. Mm-hmm. But in incredibly important work, and I think everyone would agree with that. Just uh, to, if I could add to that, one thing I would say is um, I think people might sometimes have the impression that we're kind of um, looking over these projects like in a regulatory sense, and of course there are regulations and there's laws protecting these species, but I think where we're coming from, um, you talk about how things changed over time, there's a couple areas that are really important for this. One is technology, so we have the tools and the ability to provide this information to a lot more people than in the past, even since I've been here. And so, I mean, there's thousands of these projects getting reviewed each year. And so, 
we made it easier and easier for people to get it, but also our, where we're coming from is trying to enable people to comply with the law, but in a way that they can still, we can work together to find ways um, that hopefully they can do their projects with, you know, minimal, um, you know, modifications depending on what it is. Like mm -hmm. a lot of times you have the slight shift in seasonality or, you know, things like that. So we're trying to be more proactive, as Owen said earlier in the podcast, is um, focus on proactive. How can we have true conservation on the ground? Work together, learn from each other, and um, I, I see that as a good direction that we want to continue going forward. I think that's an excellent point. And on a broader scale, too, with things like this podcast, we're hoping to just shed some more light on the work that your bureau does. So at the most basic scale, if you're a project manager and something, and you're like, oh, man, like we have to move our project because of a turtle, we hope we're kind of changing that perspective and just how important these species are to the state, to the people, to the people who use all these types of properties. So I, I think that's really good perspective to have, and I'm really glad you brought that point up. So something else we've mentioned a few times is grant funded. So I thought we'd move in now. Uh, so as a reminder for people listening, we're with Drew Feldkirchner and Owen Boyle from the DNR's Bureau of Natural Heritage Conservation. So I thought we'd move in now. So you guys, at least from my perspective, the funding model and the funding as a whole is kind of unique in NHC. Can you guys kind of touch on um, maybe how you guys are funded as a, as a whole in kind of a general sense? Sure, yeah. Um, one thing that's different is we have what's called the Endangered Resources Fund. And, I, well, I would say, I guess I would back up and say that we're largely what we call soft-funded. So that means we're funded through either grants or donations. So we don't, uh, we do get some uh, tax revenues, but it's a very small percentage overall. And so that means that for us and for a long time, we've had, you know, as part of our work is really uh, raising those funds through donations. And so we have a license plate that we sell, so that, that goes to the Nature Resources Fund. We don't sell it, actually, DOT does, Department of Transportation. Yeah, and those are those, the wolf license plate and the eagle license plate mm -hmm. that are, say, endangered resources on them. And the badger plate, too, but that one's sold out. That one's been retired. But yeah. uh, so, so the two active ones. So are, if a person with a wolf or eagle license plate cuts you off in the freeway, don't <laughs> honk at them. Because right. they are... They're supporting they uh, wildlife supporting conservation. Wildlife conservation. <laughs> so please just give them a pass. We're going to let them go. Um, and how that works, just so folks know, is those folks that cut you off, <laughs> they are giving $25 every year to our program. And so the nice thing about that is that $25, we don't send you mailings, we don't bug you, and it just kind of happens automatically when you renew your, your license plate. And so it's a nice stable funding source for us. But we also get funding from donations, so people write us checks or you know give us gifts directly. And then finally, there's the tax checkoff. So in the past, you might have seen the, the loon on the tax form, and we'd say, look for the loon. Um, since that time, there's been uh, more and more different causes added to the tax form. So the loon had to be taken off, but we are still on there. I know some folks have thought we were gone because the loon was gone, but the Endangered Resources Fund is still there. Mm -hmm. And the Endangered Resources Fund as a whole is a really important uh, component of our work. And then I would say too, is if you donate to us or give on your taxes, that money is matched by the state. So it's really doubling your donation. Whatever you give is, is double for the program. And for someone thinking, oh, I don't, I don't know, I don't wanna pay more for a license plate. 
it is free to use state natural areas. This is true. Mm -hmm. So when you are using these properties, you're bird watching, you're hunting, you're doing any number of these things, when you walk out of the car, get out of the car, you walk onto the property, it's free. So you are using these properties, I, I can't say this enough, free of charge. And as you can imagine, it's not free to manage them. And exactly. So, <laughs> and this funding model that we have, um, in a lot of ways, although we are a program in a state agency, in a lot of ways we are sort of funded a lot more like uh, some of our non-governmental organization partners where we are raising the vast majority of our own funding. So it is interesting. Uh, it's an interesting model. Um, it's been successful. Uh, and, you know, the, the program, as Drew mentioned, is, is smaller than a lot of other DNR programs, but um, we have been able to uh, sort of modestly grow it uh, over the last decade or so to the point that we're, I feel like we're in a really good position, uh, you know, to we've got the, the basics, the said building off of the species experts and the, the land management experts um, to to really uh, really start doing some good things and I think we can talk about those in a little bit too mm -hmm. some of our sort of highlights and keystone projects mm -hmm. and before we leave license plates it makes your car look at least 50% better to have one of these plates on it so I just have to throw that out there uh, I don't remember the study but it, it has been it's been scientifically proven well, I wouldn't go there that eagle license I mean, plate makes your car look cooler strictly anecdotal evidence that's right that's anecdotal um, so I, I yep I think those are all uh, really good points so I think this would be a good opportunity too to just take 20 seconds if you've donated if you've volunteered um, if you have a license plate, if you've done the tax checkoff, thank you. Um, we're starting to get into it now, kind of the on-the-ground projects, but just how important this work is um, and why it's important to get support from the public, uh, whether that's buy-in for the projects or monetary support. So I, I think there's a really good opportunity to kind of thank them for their support. We hope you continue to support it. We hope this gives you some new perspective. Um, so now what we'll move into is away from the funding and kind of we've touched on it a few times but so how do NHC staff work with other bureaus so fisheries management wildlife management um, applied sciences things like that oh there are a lot of different ways um, one of the most basic ways we've referred to a couple of times is in this sort of environmental review so at the very very basic sort of minimal level um, just avoiding impacts to threatened and endangered species. Um, but that's not, that's certainly not even the majority of our interactions with other staff. We really, I mean, um, our staff works across programs um, on literally just about anything from forestry to water quality to, um, of course, parks and wildlife um, and fisheries within our own division. Um, really just adding that perspective or, or bringing that perspective of sort of ecosystem management. And um, while we focus on, as we've been talking about, the non-game species and even the rare end of the non-game species, um, we really try and take uh, this, this ecosystem management approach where, you know, if you're managing intact, healthy systems, um, again, that's going to be the, the most efficient and effective way to keep keep our natural heritage um, on the ground, really, and that's what it's, that's, that's where we're coming from, and um, 
we've inherited right from past generations um, the amazing natural heritage that is Wisconsin which is literally the, the cornerstone and basis for our entire economy whether it's tourism or forestry or uh, you name it um, and so we've been given the, the ultimatum to, to keep that around for future generations and so um, it's like the common saying leave it better than you found it Exactly. So I think you guys are right, right in the middle of, of those efforts and doing a lot of great work. One thing I think important to note too is that um, we think of endangered species and rare species as an NHC kind of thing within the department, but it's actually part of our department mission. It's part of all of our work. And so what we try to do, we work with other programs to provide the guidance, um, the expertise, and the tools to um, for people to be able to, to incorporate those things into their work. Yep, and I think that's, that's another really great point. So moving, moving from other bureaus within the department, so can you guys just give an overview of how you may work with partner groups? Uh, we mentioned citizen-based monitoring. We'll probably touch on that again a little later. Um, other agencies, governmental agencies. So how, how often are you guys kind of working with these groups as well, as well as DNR staff? Oh, I would say it's at least as frequent that we work with uh, external partners as we do with uh, internal partners, with folks in other programs. Um, one of the things that I do is, is act as sort of a liaison to the Fish and Wildlife Service um, on federally uh, threatened and endangered species. And so, of course, um, we don't have a lot in Wisconsin. We've got a couple of dozen uh, federally listed species, uh, but of course that that brings a whole new set of opportunities and challenges. Um, and so working closely with our colleagues at Fish and Wildlife Service can be really important. And um, I'd say, you know, various federal agencies, Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, U.S. Geological uh, Service is, does, provides a lot of science and, and support for um, some of the work that, that we do and, and really that, that mm -hmm. basic science foundation. Um, so those are two national organizations. Two so national kind of agencies. Yep. Yeah. So that's that state national connection. Right. And of course we work with um, all levels of agencies and government within Wisconsin um, from counties to local municipalities as well. So I think it'd be good to segue now into we've mentioned kind of some of the species, some of the work that you guys do. We mentioned some of the, the national agencies that you guys work with. So how does can you give kind of maybe the, the abridged version of how a species may fall within NHC management, kind of where those decisions are made and how that affects kind of what species you guys may actively manage for? Well, as Drew mentioned earlier, it's all about prioritization, right? With um, literally tens of thousands of species uh, that sort of fall under the umbrella of, quote, non-game um, species that you... You can't hunt, trap, or fish. Um, and obviously, you know, there's a limited time in the day and limited resources. So uh, it's all about prioritization. And um, we've got a number of tools that help us prioritize um, that in some respects uh, are both top-down and bottom-up. Top-down from the point of view of um, every state. Uh, Fish and Wildlife Service has a program called State Wildlife Grants that fund a lot of state non-game uh, management programs and so every uh, every state has what's called a state wildlife action plan 
And that's a really deep dive, comprehensive look and review of the status of all of our native species. And um, it's a, it, as I said, it's comprehensive, but it's also, um, we keep it current and mm -hmm. up to date. Um, and so that's our sort of first step at prioritizing. What are the species of greatest conservation need, as they're called? Um, uh, and so that, that sort of starts to, to uh, think of it as a big funnel, right? If you've got all of our native species at the top of that funnel, starting to prioritize based on um, you know, the status of the populations of the species in the state, how they're doing, um, what, are the, what are the stressors that are causing maybe their declines and what we can do about those as uh, not just me as a program, but with partners and, and the public. Um, and starting to whittle down that big list into what are the species and their habitats where we're gonna get sort of the most bang for the conservation buck, right? If you manage a, a native uh, prairie, you know, how many species come along with that that you're, that you're supporting? Um, so that's really sort of that, again, that ecosystem management approach, taking the um, wildlife action plan and the best available science and, and knowledge to, to really focus on those species that are, uh, for one thing, in most imminent danger uh, of being lost from the state of Wisconsin. And those are the really rarest of the rare. And then again, as we keep coming back to, those species that are um, sort of heading in the wrong direction, right, and may end up um, needing to, or meeting the requirements or criteria for uh, state or federal listing. And so trying to intervene to, to turn the ship for them uh, before they get that, or reach that level of rarity. We have other means of, of prioritization too within our, within our program. Um, you know, uh, we do things like work planning and um, let's see, what am I leaving out there? Really? I think, oh, that was, that was a lot. I think um, another thing we look at is what's our, uh, what are our resources versus what are resources outside the department that we, we use as well? Because since we are, I mean, our program has grown, but it's still a smaller program, so we can't always have an expert in every, for example, every aquatic invertebrate or, you know, um, certain species groups where we work very closely with university, with, with folks outside of our program. And so that feeds into that as well, not necessarily on what species we work on, but um, what species our program invests in or is able to invest in. And then things come along sometimes like um, federal listings. So right now the monarch butterfly is being evaluated for federal listing. So that, that butterfly that we're all so familiar with growing up um, is actually declining to the point where it may have to be added to the federal endangered and threatened list. And so Owen's been spending time with his counterparts in other states on trying to have a proactive strategy to address that. So again, like Owen's saying, a big part of this is trying to prevent things from needing to become listed because that's it's much more effective and less uh, resource intensive to work on things before they become mm -hmm. listed. So listed is a term that we've used kind of multiple times. So for people listening, what does, what does listed mean? What does federally listed mean? And maybe just a real broad overview of how a species may get there, the process maybe that it goes through to be federally listed, and maybe some of the, the repercussions as for that people might notice on the ground as far as some of the management you guys do and that type of thing. Yeah, so in general, listed means it's either threatened or endangered. So we have a state endangered and threatened list that we're responsible for maintaining. Um, it gets reviewed periodically. 
And then there's a federal list as well, which people are probably more familiar with, the Federal Endangered Species Act. And Owen mentioned we have uh, a small number, but we have some of those federally listed species. And they're protected essentially from t what we call take, which is essentially killing of the species. So that's what's uh, prohibited by our state law. The federal law, without getting too much into the weeds, the federal law is a little bit different. It actually ha includes terms like harass, so it's not just the killing of, of the species, but it includes a broader definition. Um, so that's how they're, they're protected by a law. And so then there's different tools for, well, what if you absolutely can't avoid it for whatever reason during some other activity that you're working on, some otherwise lawful activity? Mm -hmm. um, there are tools that are designed for that purpose. There's a lot of requirements that go along with those. There's, a, for example, what we call an incidental take permit at the state level, and there's another one at the federal level. And so we help people navigate through those things, definitely on the state level, somewhat on the federal level. When it gets to a certain point, of course, we defer to Fish and Wildlife, but we do work closely with them as well. And you asked about um, how do species get added to these lists. And um, again, we don't need to go into the uh, excruciating details of <laughs> some of the how, but um, maybe it's more important to think about the why. And really, these laws are meant, both the Federal Endangered Species Act and the State Endangered Species Act, um, to, again, keep species from going extinct. So at the federal level, um, we're trying to, or they, I should say, the federal government is trying to keep species um, from going extinct from the U.S. And extinct is a really, really big thing, right? We're talking... Dinosaurs. Dinosaurs. We are and, talking and dinosaurs. And dodos. It's yeah. not just that, um, it's not just complete death it's also the end of life right like there's no more reproduction of a species it's just gone forever and so um, it's really really serious stuff and so um, as you can imagine the the federal the species that are on that federal list are the species that are um, within the United States like the closest at risk the closest to that uh, that brink of extinction and um, in Wisconsin our state list is is generally a subset of that so um, Whereas the borders of the area considered for the federal list is the United States, well, as you can imagine, the state list of endangered and threatened species is for those species uh, just in Wisconsin. So we may have species that are sort of at the edge of where they occur throughout the U.S. that are fairly rare in Wisconsin, um, and but you know they're not necessarily in danger of going extinct throughout the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, Again, we're charged with keeping them within the state of Wisconsin, um, so they might be threatened or endangered in, in Wisconsin, um, but they may not be on the federal list because mm -hmm. they're more common elsewhere. Um, but those, and, and of course, well, I should say, not every state has a threatened or endangered species uh, law, but most do. And again, the idea there is that we work closely with Fish and Wildlife Service uh, at the federal level to, um, if we keep species within our states, um, then they should, um, by extension, not need to be listed mm -hmm. at the federal level. Mm -hmm. they'll, they'll be around across the U.S. And mm -hmm. so you can see how the, the two geographic scales, the across the U.S. and then state by state, uh, sort of dovetail and, and are um, fit sort of and work together. So do you have an example of a federally, federally listed species that's currently found in Wisconsin, just to maybe give some perspective? Sure, we talked about carnivore blue butterflies earlier. Um, 
Let's see, there, we do have quite a few plant species. There's a, a beautiful orchid called the Eastern Prairie Fringed Orchid that is federally endangered, um, or excuse me, federally threatened that occurs in Wisconsin. Uh, there's the Eastern Massasauga Rattlesnake, um, one of the two venomous snakes that occur in Wisconsin, although uh, Massasaugas only occur, we only find them at about uh, eight or nine sites left in the state of Wisconsin. Um, so people don't run across them very much. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that tends to be the case for most of our federally listed species that, again, they are so rare um, that most folks don't come into contact with them on a regular mm -hmm. basis. Some people might be familiar with Kirtland's warbler. So that's a species that the main part of its range, its breeding range, now it's, it winters in Bahamas, I think, mm -hmm. its breeding range is largely in Michigan, lower Michigan, but we do have some sites in Wisconsin and they've been expanding so we're excited about that and we we're excited about the potential for them to expand more and they've done so well in Michigan through a lot of hard active management that they are uh, being discussed for delisting by Fish and Wildlife we don't we won't know when the I guess we won't have a final decision on that for a while but they're they've discussed or I don't remember the terminology but they've proposed delisting them I guess mm -hmm. right um, piping plover is another. It's a little uh, small shorebird that, um, again, one of these really uh, long-distance migrants that um, flies thousands of miles to overwinter down in Central America, but comes back up here every year and uh, needs sort of undisturbed uh, big sandy beaches in order to, to reproduce and, um, and, and produce chicks. And so um, we've only got a, a small handful of sites in Wisconsin where they can where they can reproduce. Uh, Northern long-eared bat is a more recent addition, um, and again, that's due to white nose syndrome, and we've seen just catastrophic losses um, in our winter surveys of the hibernacula, the caves and mines where bats uh, overwinter. Many sites um, where uh, Northern long-eared bat used to occur in Wisconsin, we literally can't find a bat anymore. They're just gone. Mm -hmm. And so that's uh, that species and some of the other um, hibernating bat species as well are extremely concerned about. And um, you know we're doing a lot to support research that that's happening uh, on the national level to try and find uh, treatments for white nose syndrome. And that's a perfect example of a topic I mentioned. We wanted to start with the high high level kind of overview of what the program does. When we talk about bats. Obviously, that could be its, its own podcast, and it will be. Mm -hmm. So stay tuned. That's a perfect example of a topic that we're really going to kind of dive more in depth into. Um, so I thought what we talk about now is, can you guys maybe just give a couple examples of, of kind of what's going on right now? What are some of the high-level projects that you guys are really focused on right now? Yeah, we mentioned white-nose syndrome. Um, I'll tell you, one of the things that, uh, going back to what, changes we've seen sort of in our careers. Um, one of the big things for me right now is a, a real focus nationally on pollinators and pollinator conservation. So these are the largely insects that, um, uh, well, pollinate our flowers, whether it's native plants um, in natural areas or crops in our agricultural system that uh, happen to be pollinated by by animals, by insects, anything from cranberries to apples, um, lots of different, lots of different native, or excuse me, agricultural crops need pollinators as well. And so, um, 
that's a real hot topic nationally. There's a lot of attention, a lot of resources being put toward pollinator conservation because uh, pollinator communities uh, in many cases are in real trouble. And, and pollination is one of these things we think of as, uh, you know, scientists will call it an ecosystem service. It's something that we get from nature and we don't, we don't pay for it. It's a free service, right? We get uh, crops pollinated uh, uh, with bats. We get um, mosquito control and, you know, other um, forest pests and agricultural, agricultural pests that um, are eaten by those voracious little flying mammals. And so, um, you know, there are some, there are some direct effects that uh, these ecosystem services that uh, are provided by some of these rare and declining species. And so, uh, going back to pollinators, uh, you know, monarch butterfly mentioned uh, by Drew earlier, this is a species that is literally the most iconic. I mean, every kid in America knows what a uh, uh, monarch butterfly is or re can recognize one. And um, they're in a lot of classrooms in, in, across the U.S. or um, this really cool metamorphosis that occurs between these really flashy stripy caterpillars and these big orange butterflies mm -hmm. that come out and you can see, you know, in the classroom. But that species that is so broadly distributed across most of North America um, has declined by almost 90% in the last 20 years. And um, that's, that's super concerning when you see really common, widely distributed uh, species really, really um, tanking, as it were. Their population's mm -hmm. really crashing. And, and so um, the monarch is, is also a great example of this proactive conservation work where we're trying to to recover the species uh, before it needs any kind of you know regulatory protection and uh, again this is something that I've never seen before the level of um, the collaborations that are happening across the country I mean we're working very closely with Fish and Wildlife Service and 16 other state agencies um, from Texas up to the Dakotas over to uh, Pennsylvania to really um, make a concerted effort and it's not just the state agencies it's um, the NGOs the uh, Pheasants Forever has been a huge supporter of this nationally and so you know we talk about game and non-game but there's so much overlap I mean Pheasants Forever their mission of course uh, first and foremost is um, is to, to make pheasants but but they see that um, you know grassland protection is is absolutely vital mm -hmm. for their mission and and even more so um, po good pollinator habitat is good brood habitat it provides cover for those young pheasants uh, that are going to produce the next generation so you know it's we talk about game and non-game as if they're sort of uh, uh, you know just a, a binary system but there's a lot of overlap and and we're seeing it with something like monarch butterflies where again You've got people coming together from across the spectrum, from agricultural sectors to right-of-way managers, whether it's roads or utilities or um, urban, you know, green space and golf courses, you name it. Uh, the good thing about Monarchs is that no matter where you are, um, whether it's a, you know, 10th acre parcel in the city of Madison here or um, out in the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin, in a state natural area, if there's milkweed and nectar plants there, and if they're not there, you can add them. Um, you're helping monarch butterflies and then a whole suite of pollinators. So it's a really exciting time um, to be in conservation biology and uh, particularly when um, for folks working with insects and, and pollinators, uh, native pollinators, there's, 
it's just it's an amazing effort that's happening nationally and it's really good to see and the wheels were turning for me too as you're talking about that you say 90 percent that is absolutely significant and i it may not have been at the front of my mind but i'm thinking about the last few years being outdoors i'm outdoors a lot mm -hmm. i can anecdotally anecdotally say i have seen less monarch butterflies mm -hmm. and I wasn't putting two to two together. Well, oh man, they must be in real trouble. I'm not seeing many. But when you hear you guys talking about a 90% decline, that is that is significant. And that is something people should absolutely be aware of. And that's our job, right? To, to take those uh, you know anecdotal observations and sort of the canaries in the coal mine and, and do the science and do the on the ground work to document and show that um, yeah, this is a really serious decline. It's a real thing. It's not just sort of, you know, well, maybe I didn't happen to see many last year. or uh, Like you say, anecdotal. So, yeah, that's where we come in. Because they have that incredible life history where they travel all to one spot in Mexico, they're able to monitor that area and they can, yeah, they can get really good numbers. Unfortunately, it is, it is real. And but you know your your anecdotal observations. It's the same with bats. We hear from people all the time. Well, I'm just not seeing the bats, and that correlates with unfortunately what we're seeing in the caves where they overwinter, uh, where we can count them. So, um, and it's tough too because you you're not expecting everyone in Wisconsin to have a notepad with them to be thinking about this every time they're outside. Like, right. oh, I've seen two monarchs and one bat this summer. I mean, that would be great, but it's just something that you should keep kind of in the back of your mind. And there are folks that do want to have the notepad and or the, the app or take the photo, and we have a lot of ways that they can participate in mm -hmm. all kinds of projects ranging from things that require more advanced um, kind of skills or knowledge to things that are very simple, uh, like, you know, the Monarch would be on easier end of things. Um, there's a, we just launched a Bumblebee Brigade, which will be kind of a pilot year this year, but where folks can essentially take photos of the bumblebees they see, and then they can... Um, we have tools for them to get it to the species and they can submit observations. But things like uh, uh, particularly dangerous turtle uh, road uh, mortality mm -hmm. sites, uh, people can turn that in. We have simple forum online. It's a really great way for them to, to help out and it helps us because you can imagine if the turtle is going to the same spot every year to nest and it involves crossing a busy road, year after year, and especially some of these turtles can't even reproduce till they're 15 years old or mm -hmm. something like that. So that's a huge risk for them. So people can really help out that way. Well, and, and not to understate it, I mean, we couldn't do what we do um, as a program without the public and without citizen science and citizen-based monitoring and volunteers um, collecting information and submitting it, uh, you know, sightings. Um, and, you know, and what, these projects are fun, as you can imagine, going out and, and looking for your favorite critter. Mm -hmm. um, all you have to do is, is um, send us the information, and that gets turned into, you know, real on-the-ground conservation um, and helps us track how these species are doing. Mm -hmm. And as I said, we could absolutely not do it without the public and without volunteers. So a super notable role that they can play that's actually you're a part of this this larger process exactly so we've talked about kind of the situation that bats and monarchs are in currently so on a lighter note can you guys maybe touch on a few success stories let's close on high note here <laughs> sounds good i think a favorite one uh is that i like to talk about is the trumpeter swan recovery it's you know it's a little bit of an older story but it's still really 
it's so interesting to me. So Trumpeter Swans had been completely wiped out from Wisconsin. And in, the, I think it was 1989, when one of our biologists who still works for us actually, um, through the generous uh, donations of a pilot, and it was actually the Kohler family, flew him to Alaska, obtained eggs, brought them back here, started establishing a trumpeter swan population, and it absolutely took off. And so if, if, you, if we were on video now, we could show you a graph where it was kind of an exponential growth in the population to the point where in 2009 we took them off the endangered and threatened list, and in some counties now they're kind of just commonplace. Mm -hmm. And so, and we, you know, the same thing happened, now that was with the reintroduction. Now the same thing happened with eagles and ospreys. That had more to do with um, not using some of the chemicals and, and some changes in the environment. But those are the, and that's why we have eagle on our license plate, because we see it as a symbol of success that we'd like to see happen for all or ultimately all of these other species that need our help if we could. Mm -hmm. Exactly, yeah. Those success stories show, and, and those are two very interesting types of success stories because the trumpeter swan is an example of that, you know, they were gone from Wisconsin and it took a lot of work to bring them back, right? So if we had been able to intervene before they were gone and, and you know, sort of recover them while they were still here, it would have been a heck of a lot cheaper and uh, more efficient. So, you know, for Drew and I as you know, program managers, that's the kind of, we're thinking about the efficiency mm -hmm. of the conservation bang for the buck. Uh, the eagle and osprey, and actually a lot of other raptors, you know, hawks and um, uh, other raptorial birds, like you said, Drew, that was um, federal federal actions. So basically, just stopping spraying uh, DDT, and we've seen just a, a just a remarkable comeback of those species. I mean, you think about driving around um, in the country in Wisconsin, how many red-tailed hawks you see along the roads, they're everywhere. And that didn't used to be the case and it was just a simple change in, in legislation. Well, I shouldn't say simple, but um, so, you know, again, just kind of looking at sort of different ways of, of uh, enacting and, and um, facilitating recovery. There's, mm -hmm. there are a lot of tools in the toolbox and, um, you know, really the thing that keeps us and I don't want to speak for Drew, but the thing that keeps me coming to work every day is those success stories and the fact that we can make a difference and we do make a difference. Our staff makes a difference every day on the ground um, with our mission and, and with keeping, uh, keeping species, uh, again, on the landscape, conserving our natural heritage. I, I'm looking forward to what our next success story is going to mm -hmm. be, um, you know, and in my wildest dreams, I would love to see it be a bat, you know, and see us come up with a cure for white nose and see them recover and uh, and those those little guys uh, just devouring mosquitoes again. Uh, yeah, I think <laughs> in everyone, summer skies, right? Everyone would be on board with that. that or or monarchs having monarchs a, a commonplace sight again. Um, those are the, the potential you know future success mm -hmm. stories that, that we're working mm -hmm. toward. And perspective is a word we use a lot. So if if you're kind of on the younger younger end of the age spectrum and, and you're going fishing and you say to yourself, wow, there are a lot of bald eagles. I'm seeing a lot of bald eagles. That was not always the case. That's right. So that took help from the public, from the legislature, from the federal government, from um, Drew and Owen's staff. So every kind of action has a reaction, and, and that's definitely one of them, and that's a really good success stories the bald eagle so before we start wrapping up uh, what do you 
what do you guys see as the future of natural heritage conservation? What is where what where, where do you see your your program going? Well, I think we we're going to keep building on our successes and so we're going to keep looking to find the ways we can be the most effective program we can be and help our staff be the best they can be. And so that's kind of a high high level answer, but I, I Ultimately, I think that's what we'd agree is what we're trying to accomplish here. I think more specifically, we want to build upon our citizen um, citizen efforts, citizen science, citizen-based monitoring, um, because that's not only is it provides really great information for our program, but it helps engage the citizens in what we do. I think for a lot of people, how would you know anything about a wood turtle if you you know if you haven't experienced one firsthand? You know, I think a lot of times in school we learn about you know, the, the, the rare things that occur throughout the world, different parts right. of the world, or even different parts of the country, and whales and orangutans and so yeah. on. But African large mammals. and Yeah, that. but not, again, you said like the charismatic megafauna. Right. So it helps engage. So I think citizens, I think private lands are 85% of the state. And so we want to be able to build our capacity to help private landowners that want to work with us because we've seen just in some pilot efforts there's a lot of people that want to work with us and do things on their property and we'd like to be able to help them and, and facilitate that and again we need to we need to keep our science base strong so that's the foundation i i think of our whole program is our expertise and so that needs to be uh strong that that can change over time mm -hmm. Oh, and did you want to touch on that? I, I drew it. That's tough to follow. Yeah, that no, was... and, and just, I think, to expand on um, on what Drew was saying about, uh, again, citizen science and, and volunteers both um, out there collecting information on the citizen science end, but then also working uh, and helping control invasives on state natural areas, really engaging the public, um, empowering the public and those interested and um working with volunteers and, and doing good things for our natural heritage on private lands, on public lands, uh, you name it. Again, um, this doesn't, conserving our natural heritage doesn't happen just um, through the 70 or so spe uh, people, species, people that are <laughs> working for our program. It's, it's, a, it's a responsibility of everybody in Wisconsin. And so, um, Again, looking at looking to the future, looking towards more engagement of the public, more involvement of the public, um, more um, yeah, voluntary actions. You know, really trying to, um, in my mind, ideally, again, I just can't say it enough. Working proactively so that regulations aren't necessary, mm -hmm. right? And just sort of um, having everybody work together to to conserve this amazing thing we call Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, just doing more of that, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Both excellent points. I think those are, if, if we get to that, to that situation where that's the future, I think we're in good shape. Uh, so one thing that I like to do before we wrap up is um, you meet someone on the street, they have no idea what NHC is, what it does, they've never seen a wood turtle. Uh, what's one thing that you could tell them if you had the opportunity? Oof, that's a tough one. I'd usually probably start with a question. You know, do you like going outside? And, and why do you like going outside? That's fair game. Yeah. You like to hunt, fish, bird watch, you know. Um, 
just being in nature, right? Because some, some, at some level, the answer to that question is going to be, I like to be outside just because I want to be in nature, whether it's to relax or whether it's some very specific activity. Um, and so, yeah, and then my response would be, well, we're working to keep that nature out there, right? That natural heritage. That's, mm -hmm. that's what we do in essence. Yeah, that's excellent. I think, I mean, really, that, you know, people care about things that they have a personal connection to. And so that's what it's all about. And the people that, that we work with have a connection, and that's why they, they do the work they do. But um, a lot of folks, I think if they if they had the opportunity to, to, to get connected with our work, I think they would be very interested in it and maybe even want to participate in it. Mm -hmm. So I think what Owen said is fantastic. Mm -hmm. And buy a license plate. Please. Yep. <laughs> buy a license plate. Be cool. If you want to be cool, buy a license plate. Uh, so now we'll just wrap up with closing thoughts. I guess mine's a quick one, and Drew kind of touched on it just briefly uh, right there, but you meet a lot of people who have kind of one-track minds. They favor certain species, certain plants, maybe because that's the prettiest flower, or they love deer hunting, so they only like deer. But the inner connectivity of all of this, you really just can't overstate how important that is in the work that you guys are doing, uh, working with other bureaus in DNR, and just how it, it's, it all connects. If you like deer, you should love pollinators. Like, just things like that. You need to be conscious of, of how this all works together to kind of, for the greater good. So, did you guys have, want to wrap up with closing thoughts? or? Sure, I think um, folks that that do hunt and fish are in a unique position to really enjoy the things that we that we work on. I mean, I know the times I've spent hunting where you're sitting outside for a long period of time, you get to see some cool stuff that you wouldn't have gotten to see just from a quick hike through the woods. And so it is all connected, and I think it's kind of like, I guess for me personally, I'll speak for myself, like your eyes kind of got, my eyes got opened over time to these things, and you're just, it's like opening a new world to you when you're, when you're out in the outside but in terms of closing thoughts I would just say look we're gonna have challenges we know that we've got challenges we're gonna have more challenges um, but we're in a position to do great things and we can all be part of it uh, we, we've talked about donations but we've talked about a lot of other ways people can get involved besides you know giving us a donation and we invite people to do that I would say uh, really invite people to go to our website you can look up annual report NHC annual report it gives you kind of some of the things we're up to each year. Uh, we're we're planning on putting out another one of those this year. It'll be in the, if you do get uh, subscribed to the magazine, Natural Resources magazine, it'll be in there. But also, we'd be happy to mail you a copy or you can go online. And um, we just welcome anyone to uh, get involved. And that's where I would leave it to get involved. Um, again, we have shared responsibility for our, our natural heritage and, um, just get involved. So we mentioned it a couple times there too, two great closing thoughts by the way, but uh, go on our website, dnr.wi.gov. Uh, you can search keyword volunteer to look how you may be able to volunteer. Drew mentioned the annual report, search natural heritage conservation. Um, our YouTube page has a lot of really great videos, citizen-based monitoring, so many opportunities to get involved. So. We just want to thank you again for joining us today. So we covered a lot. Um, as I mentioned, we covered kind of the broad umbrella of natural heritage conservation 
and I think Drew and Owen did a really good good job of explaining the work that they do. Uh, we're going to be looking to do, now that we've got that established, we're going to be looking to kind of drill down more, uh, cover those a lot of those species, species level podcasts, so you can look forward to those. Um, you can find this podcast um, and others at dnr.wi.gov, keywords Wild Wisconsin, uh, on our YouTube channel, which is WIDNRTV. Uh, we're launching the iTunes channel, so stay tuned for that. Um, and always check out our, our Facebook and Instagram pages. NHC um, is a, definitely a regular player on those pages. Um, we have a lot of great photos, great videos, great information. So um, get involved, volunteer, buy a license plate. Uh, when you're out in the woods, be thinking about all these things and how it's all connected. Uh, so thanks for joining us, and we will see you next time on the Off the Record podcast.